Well, here we are on Sunday evening at uh, 7 o'clock, and I have a new guest in the studio now, a regular guest, uh, hopefully in the future. It's Vicky Howells, MS, from the Cullen Valley. Good evening, Terry. How are you? Oh, good, thank you, yes. Good. Lovely to meet you. You know, since we've sort of extended our transmissions to reach, you know, the Cullen Valley, mm. been meaning to get you in and have a regular chat. In fact, we'll do that in future now on a monthly basis if it's all right with you yes absolutely and it's just wonderful to have gtfm covering the kenan valley now and i speak to so many people who listen in and really value the service that you provide oh Hmm. that's good to hear well it's it's very hard could you turn these things on and of course we're in the middle of the pandemic Hmm. i mean we had a a ridiculous launch (laughs) where everyone was six feet apart you know (laughs) and they couldn't be sure whether ragsy was allowed to sing or not oh gosh i haven't actually told anyone this live but it's a couple (laughs) of years have passed now right so we asked one of the uh, people in charge of the center and they didn't know they went off to ask and so we thought, oh, we'd better do it then. And Ragsy sang his song, and he sounded great. You know, everyone kept their distance and all the usual thing, all the masks, you know. Yes. And then he came back and said, no, you can't. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, I remember those times really well, and the number of queries we would have to the office, you know, am I allowed to do this or that? Am I allowed to do this when I'm also doing that? And it was just so difficult to try and advise people. Uh, and the rules were changing so fast as the pandemic changed so fast. And, yeah, it was it was such a dreadful time for everyone wasn't it oh oh yes but but having launched at that time you know we we couldn't do any of our usual stuff because normally we'd be all over the place with leaflets and meeting people and stuff and of course we couldn't do any of that at all all we could do was a bus back campaign with adverts saying what the new frequencies were yes but, you know, until now, really, it's only now that uh, we can get out and about with the leaflets. So um, we've not, apart from having some good feedback from the listeners mm. and people who've joined in and say they're enjoying it and so on, we're very encouraged by the fact that the number of local organisations are contacting us for their what's-ons. Yeah, and that's a good indicator if they're reaching out to you, isn't yes. it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So it's so it's a, it's a joy being in the Cunnan Valley. And, of course, there is a lot going on isn't there yes and and not all of it totally harmonious i suppose because i mean a thing that you've been very involved in you're still involved in i'm sure is the dreaded link road Mm. that uh, seemed to be a foregone conclusion and it went through rct and got all the ticked boxes and it was you know going to be built and the people building 465 are building the roundabout (laughs) which it will connect to but it isn't happening it's on, on ice for now for now, yes. I mean, I think you've probably hit on the biggest issue locally in, in the northern part of the Kenan Valley and it's something I feel really strongly about, really passionately about, you know. The community was campaigning to get the Heads of the Valley Road dueled for, gosh, I think about 30 years, you know, way before I became involved in politics. And, you know, that's a road that has seen so many serious accidents and fatalities. I was passionately in favour of getting that duel in through. So wonderful when we, we had the funding, when we had the plans for it. But that road only works if it connects properly into the Cunnan Valley. Otherwise, it just becomes a very expensive bypass. Uh, And the planning inspector actually said when he passed the duel in for that stage that the road would only really work if the Cunnan Gateway um, was built to link in to uh, Aberdeer. So, yeah, I can I can go on and on. Ask me as many questions as you want about it. But, you know, it's my it's really my big campaign that I want to see come to fruition. But I know it's going to be a long haul. 
Yes, I mean it's it's come a cropper because of the government's moratorium. It's not not it's not a a ban on building roads. They keep telling us that, mm. but a lot of big schemes, especially up in North Wales, have got shelved like probably forever. So it gives the impression that you know there's a massive moratorium on building roads. And in the case of this one, it seems a no-brainer in the sense that the roundabout to connect it above Floyd Coyd is being built now. Yes. I mean they're building it now, but the road won't be there to connect to it. It's just the sort of small road down through Floyd Coyd that's coming up to that junction yeah. now. I think, isn't it? That's right. So the with the Welsh Government's roads review, uh, a third of the roads that went through that review were passed and given the green light now. And we were sort of put in the, the amber pile, if, if you want to call it that, which is they think it's a good idea for the future, but they want to see all sorts of tweaks to the scheme to make it more environmentally friendly um, and, and to assure that it's not going to be the kind of road that when it's built will just encourage more traffic. Um, so... All sorts of changes that need to be made to the scheme, but to my mind, it's an essential scheme because without it, what we're going to see is a, a whole heap of traffic filtered through that B road through the village of Lukeoid, which cannot cope with the traffic that it's got uh, coming now. The only alternative, if you if you want to support the people of Lukeoid and not use that road, is to drive on um, to the Rickos exit, uh, which is you know way way out uh, from. Uh, for those who want to travel down to Aberdeen uh, and and to come through that road then. So that the Cannon Gateway would be the preferred route. Um, RCT planning passed it, as you said. I supported it from the outset. Um, but it is back to the drawing board now to see how that scheme could be tweaked so that it meets the new road building criteria. Hmm. The business on uh, environmentally friendly, I've said this to Mick and he sort of raised his eyebrows, but um, the fact is is we're going over to electric cars Hmm. and that's got a major, that'll have a major impact on the amount of emissions and environmental case. I mean, the argument that the more roads you build, the more cars come and fill them up is to some extent true. But in a case of this, I think what people don't realise is that the Hirwine roundabout, the junction with the A, A, mm. A not B, 4059, yep. is gone. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's written out of the plan because the junction was going to be slightly further, you know, towards Merthyr, mm. um, linking down past Floyd Coyd to the 4059, you know, further into Aberdare, really, isn't it? At the mm. bottom of the hill going down into Aberdare, somewhere there would be the junction that joins it. Yes. So, yeah. so it all kind of makes sense, and the there isn't the point is the existing road isn't going to be an option for much longer. It's still there. I mean, they're, they're maintaining that roundabout for now, mm. but it's it's going, and um, then it's a long way round, as you say. Yeah, it is. It is a long way round, and you know, I'm I'm really concerned for the residents of of Lukeoid, uh, with the additional traffic that will be going through there. There's a primary school on that main road. Um, I know that the council are looking into traffic calming measures. Uh, that road will be 20 miles an hour also from September, which will, of course, help residents who are worried about the speed of traffic and danger, but will do nothing to assist traffic 
traffic flow onto what will be you know it's a trans-european highway the heads of the valleys road it's a really important infrastructure road that connects uh, from the midlands um all the way down to milford haven and over to ireland so you know we're talking about really big heavy goods vehicles using that road and if Kenan valley wants to be part of the economic regeneration that that road can bring then we've got to get vehicles like that on and off that road safely you know in a diplomatic way i'm sure you'll keep up the pressure on your colleagues down at the welsh government to try and get some action on this because it makes absolutely no sense not having the link when the roundabout has been built as well down into into Aberdare, you know avoiding villages it's just crazy and and hopefully somebody will see the sense of that at some point and uh say well go on but I build it then yeah I hope so I mean I'm going up to Slute Coid uh, next weekend actually uh, with the local councillors and Andrew Morgan the leader of our city council we're going to be meeting with residents up there to brief them on the latest steps you know our city council have just secured some funding from Welsh government to explore the next steps uh, for this road um, and I'm really hopeful for the future I think one of the things I've learned in politics is that change can take a long time which is deeply frustrating for residents um, but you know part of my role is to take that long-term future uh, look at things and to think well I'm not giving up on this and if it takes 10 15 years you know I will keep knocking at the door of whoever is the next first minister whoever is the next economy minister whoever is the next transport minister because this is something that I firmly believe is needed for the future of the Cunningham Valley. Yes, and you'd think the fact that it's actually an integral part of the A465 plan, which is being backed by government and uh, which is being built, you know, at a pace all the way along that uh, stretch, you'd think that because it's an essential part of that scheme, that it would have been nodded through, really. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was hopeful when the roads review was first announced that this road wouldn't even be considered a part of it because my mindset was that this was a link um, to that scheme that was was being built, you know, the dueling of the heads of the valleys road. And I saw the two things as being completely conjoined. Um, So I was surprised when it even came under the remit of the roads review. But still... You know, my my optimism um, guided me through that, thinking, well, surely it's it's you know, if they're looking to pass any roads, surely this one should be it. There is a very small portion of the the plans as they stand um, that would cut through a site of special scientific interest. I think it's under five percent of that site, and I think that's going to be key looking back at it. But the difficulty with trying to move the route of that road is that what we want to do in the long term as well is to open the railway um, from Aberdeer up to Hirwine and so you know if if we want to keep that as an option which I really really do then it, we're quite limited with um, the space for where the the Cannon Gateway roads can go so yeah lots of jiggling round to do. Yes and of course the railway is still there isn't it? Yes um, it is. The rail track uh, uh, it, did it go to Tower Colliery originally? Yes yes. Yeah so that's that's tidy, isn't it? It's exactly the right place, really, to to turn up. I know there are plans to put some kind of um, park and ride 
Mm. up there aren't there yes there are and there's some really exciting and interesting plans for the future it is down as being one of the next steps for the metro um but unfortunately the next steps for the metro are to be delivered within 10 to 15 years so again we're looking <laughs> at long-term planning but as you said you know the the rails are there um there are various different options what myself and the leader of our city council would like to see is a halt at Chikanen one at Hirwine in the village centre and then this big park and ride on the old tower land which um, could actually capture a lot of traffic coming from uh, Neath um, and also from Powys. Uh, we've got traffic modelling that shows that commuters would come down and use that park and ride in order to get the train to Cardiff. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If you're coming down from Brecon or somewhere, mm. then it would be a place to hop on a train and leave the car and whatever. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's right. And the, what a lot of people don't realise is the Neath line um, doesn't stop at Cardiff Queen Street because uh, it comes in on, on the Swansea main line. So anybody from the Neath area who wants to go and get off at Cardiff Queen Street because that's easier for them. There's a, there's a historic pattern of them coming up to catch the train from Aberdeer. So, you know, there's so much potential that we could capture there with commuters. And they're actually running these electric trains up and down uh, at speed now. Yes. I, I saw a video. I mean, train goes through quickly, you know, kind of video. I mean, how interesting is that? But, of course, it's one of these little tram things, isn't it? Yes, it is. And uh, I was licking up the line uh, the other night, wasn't it? And they were filming it. But, uh, you know, it proves it all works. And uh, the electrification is gradually you know, reaching the ends of the line, isn't it? Yesterday, I live in Cumbach, and I was so delighted to hear the train tooting as it went past. And I thought... Thank goodness for that. You know, the information I received from Transport for Wales is correct and the trains are back on. Yes, I mean, they're the old rickety trains for now, aren't they? But they are. has the electric got through to the end of the track now? Then? Yes, that's right. So all the um, the overhead beams are there uh, and ready to be switched on. Um, and one of the things that I'm focusing on now is the safety campaign for residents because, unfortunately, we do have a really high rate of trespass, a culture of trespass on the valleys lines. Um, and part of that, I think, is because people are used to only having generally one train an hour two trains an hour at rush hour um, and there's just this culture of feeling that it's not that dangerous to cross the line but now when the electrification um, is actually turned on you're looking at a hundred times the amount of electricity that goes through the average family home and uh, Transport for Wales have been doing a really good job actually of trying to uh, promote the dangers um, of trespass on the new lines uh, because that level of electricity will kill. Yes, and it's 33,000 volts, isn't it? Yes. It's a bit difficult. I mean, that is a bit hair-raising, quite literally. And uh, the thing about it is that unlike the power we have in our house, which won't jump across the gap, in that sort of voltage does jump across the gap. Absolutely. So if you get within a few metres of it, especially on a damp day, actually, mm. when there's a lot of mist, then you can have a crack of lightning and you can be hit by it, even though you're not touching it. Yes. And I think that's a huge difference in perception, isn't it? That they're trying to get across to people. Like if you're carrying something tall, long and metal, mm. you know, be careful. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, when we get uh, the metro trains um, coming up and down one every 15 minutes, the tracks do well now to, to Aberdeen, that, that work is complete, then we're going to see a much higher frequency of trains. So there's a danger that people who may be inclined to, to trespass or to, to cross the level cross 
person when the light is still on red uh, they might think oh well the train's just passed me it's safe to cross now but what they don't realize is that there's another train coming from the other direction because you know historically that is not something we're used to on the Aberdeer line so there's there's a real real importance to have that education and that cultural shift I know Transport for Wales have been going into all the secondary schools to deliver lessons um, to young people on that Yes. Well, of course, it, you know, it's eight train movements an hour, isn't mm. it? That's the point of four, you know, in each direction. Yeah. Um, so that's quite often. Absolutely. I mean, and down in Pontypridd, I mean, there's going to be 12 mm. trains because the three branch lines all come through Pontypridd. So that's an amazing service, actually. It's more yes. like London Transport. It's more like the tubes in yeah. the sense that there's another one behind, you know, wherever you're going. And if you're going down from once the lines join up at Ponty. If you're going down into Cardiff, making them being the right distance apart would be the issue, yes. actually, um, which is a problem we've not had before. No, it's not. I mean, you know, it's such a huge change, and I th- hope that this change will encourage people to to use the trains, use public transport. It's so much better uh, for the environment, for, for the future of our planet. Um, and, you know, it, it just alleviates all the congestion with, that we're seeing on the A470 and other roads. So... I'm really hopeful for the future that we are creating a world-class public transport service here in the South Wales Valleys. Yes, and it's interesting that there is a dimension, as you say, at the top of the Cannon Valley, which which makes a lot of sense extending mm-hmm. up to, to here wine because, you know, it's largely there already. Yes. So that's great. Well, good luck with your crusading with the road. <laughs> Thank you. Um, with your own people in, in Labour, <laughs> which <laughs> yes. is quite an interesting problem to have, isn't it? <laughs> you, you can't blame the opposition for this one. <laughs> no, no, but you know that's. I think that's that's what happens when your party's in power. You're always going to get differences um, of opinion. But you know we are a small group in the Senate, and one of the beauties of that is that as a backbencher, it's it's really very straightforward to be able to get your voice heard and to lobby on things that's important to you. Um, and that's very much what I intend to keep on doing. Yes, and you're chair of the Labour group, aren't you? Yes, I am. And which which is it must be an interesting experience, actually. Yes, I really enjoy the role. I mean, you know, it's it's very much a behind the scenes role. It's uh, there's no glitz and glamour to it. There's no press releases. There's there's no uh, enhanced salary. But um, you know, our labour group meetings are the powerhouse of uh, what we get done down in the Senate. And I feel it's a real honour to be the chair of the group. You know, there's uh, we're we're a small group. There's uh, there's twenty nine of us. We're all very different. We all bring different skills. Uh, and ideas to the table and chairing those meetings where we have really frank conversations between members of the government and and backbenchers and and trash things out behind closed doors and then go into that chamber united um you know it's 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 a it's a really really interesting role that's quite a useful strategy if you can pull it off, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> and invariably we do. <laughs> a bit of government unity. That's a rare treat, actually, isn't it? So thinking about it on a larger scale. Um, and, of course, you say there are, there are 29 of you because there are 60 um, members of Senate at the moment, aren't there? Mm. And the plan, which everyone except the Welsh Conservatives uh, is very keen on, is this new reform that's coming through yes. um, where there'll be, is it 96 of you? 
Oh, do you know, I meant to double check that number no, before I, I came down. I think it's 93, but it's, 93. It's, it's just over 90. Now, of course, you know, those looking at public spending and those who have a poor view of politicians, largely because of expenses, scandals and other things that have happened in the past, you know, uh, will be thinking that's an awful waste of money and more politicians will chat in, you know. But actually, uh, having talked to Mick, uh, you know, who's your counterpart mm. in uh, Taff Ely, over the years, it's pretty obvious that the amount of work now with the amount of devolution that we have, you know, the bits that aren't mm. disputed by the UK yes. government... <laughs> Um, which is an interesting tussle at times, but that's not... The point is you do have more powers and you do, therefore, have to do a lot more committee work. And mm. I think perhaps listeners don't realise how much committee work you all do. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's a, a really good point. And um, uh, Mick's been working on the, on the figures, actually, the finances of it, because it is important that we show people that what they'll be getting is value for money. And um, this increase will actually work out each year at less than 1% of the Senate's overall spend. Um, and what it should do then is to give us better powers to scrutinise Welsh Government because even for people like me, you know, I'm a I'm Labour but I'm a backbencher so a really important part of my role is to scrutinise government policy and to hold the government to account if I think that they uh, should be doing things differently or better. Well in order to scrutinise that policy especially when so many more powers have been devolved to us you need to have fully functioning committees that are able to um, to, to read um, and to take in uh, very, very long and complex documents. You know, we've just been looking on, on the, uh, the Economy and Rural Trade Committee at the Agriculture Bill. Well, you know that if I, if I brought that in today to show you, it's uh, it's well over a thousand pages, um, and we've had to really immerse ourselves in the legalities of it, uh, as well as all the the issues around farming and the environment. So it's. It is an awful lot of work if it's going to be done properly and people do need the government to be scrutinised properly so that when we put in place laws in Wales, they're going to work as best as they possibly can for the people of Wales. Well, of course, the thing about these committees is they're cross-party as well, mm. aren't they? So uh, although we're used to seeing, not that often really, the odd clash you know, in the Senate between party leaders most of the time you guys all work together yeah and you know that was the biggest surprise I had when I was first elected and, and went to the Senate in 2016 you know I was sort of getting getting ready with my, my boxing gloves and thinking <laughs> you, it, this was going to be confrontation um, nine, nine till five uh, five days a week but it's really not like that at all and it's so refreshing particularly in the committees to see where parties can come together and just work together for the best interests of the of the nation there are going to be things that different parties will will disagree on but there are so many more things that we do agree on um and a lot of those are things that stakeholders um and different groups bring to us like for example the the issues that the farming unions bring on behalf of the farmers you know each of the parties I would say broadly agrees on about 85 to 90% of that and so you're getting the voice of the industry right through then into the new legislation that you bring in because obviously the the, the Tory members uh, you know you've had more of those of, of late mm. bottom of line is they are Senate members representing their areas yes 
And as you say, if they're rural areas, they're, they're much more aware of the issues than perhaps we are in urban areas and yes. so on. And the rest, the rest of us have to catch up, really, with what the issues are because the big change in all this, I guess, is the climate change challenge, mm. which runs through everything, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely it does. And I think that's why it's it's so great that um, one of the first things that Mark Drakeford did when he became First Minister was to appoint a Minister for Climate Change and a Deputy Minister for Climate Change. I remember sitting down and reading the portfolios for those two individuals for the first time. And when you see everything that's in there, you just think, wow, you know, there's not much left for the rest of them. But it just shows uh, how much... Uh, um, really comes under that and and how many different policy areas can have an impact on climate change, um, either positive or negative, depending on, on how the government actually runs the country. And another angle is the very unique thing we've got in Wales, which is the future generations um, input as well. Yes, Yes. Because that kind of goes across everything. Yeah, it does. And, you know, that's 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 a, a really, really interesting um, act. And having the commissioner there to have oversight uh, is tremendous. And I've, I've seen some really positive ways in which that's been used uh, over the last few years. Um, so I, I can remember, for example, there was a case uh, down in Carmarthenshire where a, an international store had come in and refused to put up Welsh signage. And the councillor door worked together to try and use the Welsh Language Act to force them to do that but there was a loophole in that act which meant that it, it wasn't successful but the Future Generations Act was watertight and managed to get that changed so that it was bilingual signage using the Future Generations Act. I mean you know that's 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 one example but there are so so many others of how it works. That must have been an interesting revelation at the time. It's like yes. eureka moment, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> I love going into schools and talking to young people about politics and, and seeing the things that they're really interested and enthuse them. Um, and they often have a really good understanding of the Future Generations Act and, and a, a lot of respect for how it's being used now and, and the potential for its use in the future to, to make our country as good as it can be. Well, when you talk about Carmarthenshire, I mean, if you go down the high street in Carmarthen, at least every other conversation is in Welsh, isn't it? Funny enough, I, I came along to the proclamation event oh, yes. last week. Yes, it was fantastic, wasn't it? Well, it was fantastic, but it's the first time in my life that I've been somewhere where everyone is speaking Welsh. Mm. Because, um, which I think happens more in the north but we're not used to it here in the South, perhaps. But obviously, it was a, a group, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people uh, all milling around outside the Sobel Leisure Centre, getting ready to march off in that impressive way. And obviously, they're going to speak Welsh, but but it's quite an interesting, from, from my point of view, as someone who has done a couple of things on Duolingo, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, pronoun da, whatever, <laughs> borida, but I'm only at that level. Yeah. But it's interesting, isn't it? And... and what seemed to be the case, I noticed you tweeted about this, that the Gosseth people had been telling you yes. that the Aberdare welcome was particularly special. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that really made my day. It was a fantastic day from start to finish. But when you get to talk to bards who do these proclamation ceremonies 
twice a year in different parts of Wales and they were completely genuine and the the comments they made to me you know, I didn't go fishing for these compliments but that it was wonderful that so many of them said to me what a great reception they had in Aberdeer um, and, and how many people had turned out to welcome uh, the ceremony I think a large part of that is down to the work of Aberdeer Bid our business improvement district we've got a really fantastic team of people there now who are uh, completely committed to to enhancing the town transforming the town so they've done a lot of work putting out the the Welsh dragon flag uh, on the front shops bunting um, advertising on social media about what the Eisteddfod proclamation ceremony was uh, and this created a buzz um, which was kind of self-perpetuating then and on the day itself the the crowds were fantastic and uh, one of the things that one of the bards said to me was it wasn't just the number of people who were there it was the the strength of the welcome but also the fact that people understood what was going on and he said it was as in contrast to other towns where often they feel that they go there and people are looking at them very curiously wondering what is this what is this doing in my town so you know i was quite proud to think that Aberdeen had had done the job of of explaining to people what the ceremony was why it was so important uh, and the people had come along to support that well i hope we helped in that because uh, helen was on with me Helen Prosser the morning before mm. but we've actually in our news bulletins at, at, in our uh, what's ons we've sort of explained or tried to explain what it's about so clearly bid were doing that as well yes. and there's been a lot of awareness created as to what it's all about and actually when you went along to to watch it because um, I went down with a couple of our Welsh-speaking volunteers. Mm-hmm. So they did the work on the air because they recorded bits for their Welsh programmes uh, and also reported live in English to, to the output we had here. So I was sort of, you know, if you like, supervising that, I suppose. And, and um, you know, but it, it was a very colourful thing, actually. I think it's probably the, all the robes and everything. It's really quite magical, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it was. And um, on the invite, we were all encouraged to, to dress colourfully and uh, to, to embrace that. Uh, side of it as well and yeah it, it just felt so vibrant didn't it do you speak welsh oh tipping bach just a little bit just a little bit i wish i could speak more i really do well helen was telling me that um she she runs welsh learning lessons doesn't she helen mm. prosser who is the uh, the chair of the local organizing committee for rct now there are local local committees as well but she's the overall person and the one who handed over the you know the bits of paper yes. to the uh, arch druid uh, on yes. uh, on Saturday, uh, and um, she said that they're going to do a course, which I hope we can be involved in on the radio because we were thinking of doing it as well. With the Steadford coming, it would be great if there was a sort of quick Welsh course that was thorough enough for people to have a reasonable understanding of it if they yes. went to the gig, which is like August after next, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So they're That's thinking right. of doing a, a free course actually. Um, I think early next year and uh, you know watch the space we'll promote it Mm -hmm. as much as we can because that'll be great because they've had the idea that well obviously people in a county which according to the census has a fifth of people understand Welsh enough to tick the box Um, I said well I bet you it's a lot of people who who are fairly proficient at it actually who don't tick the box because Mm. they're afraid that the academics will come down on them because there is a kind of thing in Wales isn't there academic Welsh um, you know what I mean is it good enough is it is it properly spoken and people are very conscious about that 
Yeah, and I I know um, when the latest census data was out, this was something that we debated um, down in the Senate because uh, um, some people were disappointed that uh, the use of the Welsh language hadn't grown. But this is one of the things we were looking at. The way that the census questions are worded um, really does sort of put you off saying that you you can tick that box because the expectation is quite high um, and that census was actually taken in the middle of COVID where a lot of young people who uh, would attend Welsh medium schools were not there they were at home locked down so you know was that a reason why less people ticked the the boxes but you know I think the most important message to take from that is that we what we need to do is to to make people feel confident to use the language even if they're not 100% about it. You know, if you look at, at European nations where people speak two or three languages, they don't hold back because they don't think they're going to get every word or every mutation perfect. They just go for it. Uh, and we need to be more like that if we're going to be using the language and keeping the language alive. Yes, I'm sure that's the case. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a barrier to break down, isn't it? Mm. But at the time of the census, well, interestingly, though, RCT didn't drop. The amount of um, people who speak Welsh in RCT didn't drop in the census, and it didn't drop in Cardiff either, though I suppose it's a, a smaller minority there. Yes, that's right. And I think part of the reasons why we are doing fairly well in, in RCT, holding those figures and hopefully enhancing them as well, is the, the growth of Welsh medium education. And we're doing really well here in RCT at... Uh, at creating more school spaces for young people because we know there is this demand with families uh, that, that this is what they want, this is the future they want for their children and isn't that great? Yes, and it's interesting, isn't it, that pe- incomers send their kids to Welsh medium schools who, who don't speak Welsh themselves and sometimes they're not Welsh. I mean, they don't have a Welsh background but there's a perception that it is a, a good thing to learn another language. Yes, and that's what we need to, to tap into and to, to really um, take advantage of that positivity and, and just keep going. Yes, it's interesting to see uh, the difference with the Welsh language. I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't really take any notice of the census figures myself because what I see here at the radio station is a massive change. I mean, I've been here for over 10 years now. And we have work experience kids coming in, you know, sixth formers, as they used to call it in my day. Yeah. <laughs> um, or or um, top of fifth formers. And um, they come in for a week of work experience. And, of course, there's been a break during COVID. But in the period before COVID, you know, there was a noticeable difference in the number of people with an interest in Welsh. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, not necessarily always from Welsh medium schools mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. Latterly, early days... The only interest in Welsh or knowledge of it was at the Welsh medium schools. People coming here, and the vast majority weren't from Welsh medium schools. You see, didn't hear it much. Huge difference since, and you know, we're only talking about ten years now. Yeah. Um, and, I, and of course, the key thing I think is that there are proper jobs available if you Absolutely. speak Welsh. I mean, there are better jobs available, yes. you know, better paid jobs yes. in places like the Senate. Yes. Which has a you know bilingual policy, and, and you look at the adverts for jobs in the Senate. It says ability to speak Welsh an advantage, but if you can't, we'll teach you mm. because you know you need to speak it, and and that's just how it is. Mm. Yeah, that's a huge change then, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is for youngsters going through school. Mm-hmm. And we had a trainee here um, who uh, actually was running a shop, and banged on the door one day and says, "Right, I've taken two weeks holiday from my shop." I think I want to be a radio journalist. Can you give me some practice and some some training? 
Hmm. She's a really bright girl too. I mean, you know, because she stopped. She thought, no, I, I really want to have a go at this. <laughs> um, and she came in here and learned a trade, but she was bilingual. So as soon as she knew what she was doing, which didn't take very long, to be honest, she was able to work on uh, Capital Radio uh, in North Wales, which is in Welsh, unusually. I mean, you would imagine that. But there's a Welsh language Capital Radio. Well, it, I think it's because, it's because of the station that they took over had a, a remit to do quite a lot of Welsh language because it's in a Welsh language area. Oh, that's really <laughs> so you've got Capital Radio coming out with you know in Welsh, which is like bizarre. But they need people to read their news. And because she had good spoken Welsh, she was able to do that as well as work at the BBC. Mm. And it had accelerated her career through to, I think, ITV Wales is where she ended up. But that fact that she was bilingual helped her in her early days, whereas it wouldn't have done, you know, a few years ago. No, that's right. Yeah. So, so there we are. Um, so, yeah, onwards and upwards with that. But we, we have to learn it, Vicky, that's the thing. Yes, yes. <laughs> we can sit here saying, well, I think we really ought to, but we really ought to. Mm-hmm. I think that's the way the world is going now. Anyway, we've talked about road building and Senior's reform. One thing, um, reform of boundaries has been a, a topic of conversation and a serious topic mm-hmm. up, up in the Cullen Valley with you because the parliamentary boundary is demolishing, you know, the, the, the constituency of Cullen yes. Valley, isn't it? Uh, you yeah. know, and Beth has had a very tightly fought, you know, battle with another Labour MP, mm. the one for Merthyr, uh, which she lost uh, because local Labour voters voted marginally for, for him. It's Gerald, I think, isn't it? Yes, Gerald Jones. Because there can only be one because it's an amalgamated um, seat. It's going to be one of the reductions. They're getting rid of the Cunning Valley. Yes. They're putting the bottom end of the Cunning Valley into Alex Davis-Jones's constituency, uh, mm. you know, Pontypridd. And the top end is going with Merthyr. But that would seem to be a negative thing from the point of view of the Cunnan Valley and its identity. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we, we've been fearing would happen for quite some time uh, because there is this duty uh, on Parliament to look at the boundaries um, every few years. The idea is that every MP should uh, look after the same number of people, so around mm. about 75,000. And you can see why that is important for equality, that you've got uh, constituencies that are roughly the same size. Uh, but of course, the trouble in the valleys is the geography. It's so much easier in, in flat areas to redraw those boundaries to take account mm. of population changes. Uh, and in the valleys, it's much more difficult. And you know, over the years that I've been involved in, in politics, uh, not just since I've been a member of the Senate, but um, over the years when when it was just my hobby, you know, some of the plans that I've seen coming out of the the Boundary Commission, uh, the independent body that's that's tasked with redrawing the map, some of the shapes that they've come up with over the years have been absolutely awful, and then they've all been put on the back burner until the last minute, and there was a hope really that this one wouldn't go ahead as well because people like the the areas that they have and know uh, and if those areas are delineated by mountains and create those natural boundaries then people rightly feel that that is a self-contained community that deserves representation on its own so you know we w- we have been hoping that th- we could spin this out longer and longer and continue uh, with things um, as they are but uh, the Prime Minister decided he, he wanted to go ahead with the, the reforms and 
and really there's there's nothing else that can be done then it's just a case of having to look at those new areas and select your candidates in preparation for the next general election so you know that's where we're at I noticed on the over the past few days they've changed the name of the new um, constituency it was going to be Merthyr Tidville and Upper Cannon, but they're now reverting to the old um, title of Merthyr Tidville and Aberdeer because of course the two areas were joined um, historically as a parliamentary seat um, way back when Keir Hardy uh, was the MP for the area so there is that historic link but you know People don't like change. I don't like change. Uh, and it's the, the areas right in the middle where that cut-off point has been made, where it's it's going to feel most difficult. So um, from uh, Cumbach on the one side of the valley over to Abercrombie on the other side, we will all go up into the new constituency of Merthyr, Tidville and Aberdeer. And anyone from Mountain Ash down becomes part of the new pont Preeth constituency. And I think it's, it's also difficult for people to understand the way that all these different layers of government work because people have said to me will we not be a part of our city council anymore will we have to join Merthyr council and the answer to that is no this is just a change for your parliamentary uh, boundaries your local authority boundaries stay the same and for the moment your senate boundaries stay the same well that's the next thing isn't it yes that, that I, I was a little surprised to note that um, the Senate boundaries are going to follow the parliamentary boundaries eventually. Yes, that's right. So the Boundary Commission will um, make the ultimate decisions, but the plan is that the new Senate constituencies will join two of the new parliamentary constituencies together. And again, it will be the Boundary Commission who will make the decision as to which constituencies to pay. It's very simple the way you just said it. Mm. The reality must be a nightmare. Yes, I mean, you know, <laughs> there'll be lots of flailing and you know, gnashing of teeth involved in that. Yeah, and <laughs> as a, as a sitting Senate member, you can spend many an hour lying awake at night thinking, you know, who am I most likely to be paid with? What will be the outcome? How will this work? How will people feel about it? It it is a big change, and uh, I understand the reasons for the change. My fear is that what people like is to have a very local representative who they know and they trust um, and this system will perhaps make people feel that the parliamentarians are more remote from them to have six members um, over what I would call a super constituency mm. two parliamentary constituencies joined together that's a big change you know and I just hope that people it doesn't make people lose faith in having that link with whoever is going to be representing them because I certainly, if, if if I'm fortunate enough to be reselected and re-elected, would still feel just as passionately about trying to, to work for the whole area that I'd be elected for. And, of course, the fact that, you know, at the moment we've got constituency MSs like yourself mm. and there's one per area and then there are the regional ones, aren't there? Yes. Like South Wales Central. So here we've got five representatives, and they're across the parties as well in that group. But the, there are two, basically two tiers, aren't there? And the second tier, the regional ones, there's, there's a, an amount of 
proportional representation and mm. the way the votes are kind of interpreted. Yes. Where with yours, it's sort of first past the post. It is, yes. And there are plans to change that as well, aren't there? That's right. So it will be a, a form of, of PR that will be used for the election process um, and the, the seats would be worked out based on that. Well, the idea is that you take all the tears away so that, uh, you know, you don't get people standing up in the Senate, as you do now. I'm not one of them, who say, you know, um, you didn't even win an election. I won the election because they went on the first past the post. And there is this perception then that the regional members are sort of the runners up and it creates that two tier system. Mm. So the the one of the, the principles behind the change is that it will be more democratic. Everybody will be elected on a PR basis and everybody will be elected equal to um, to represent that area. So the voters will be presented with a sort of first choice, second choice kind of ballot, will they? Yeah, we think, I mean, this is something that's still up for discussion, but we think the way it would go is you'd have each party um, on the paper, it would be one of these very long ballot papers, and then each party would have about eight candidates because you're looking at six seats, um, but no by elections. So if anybody was to step down or to pass away during the course of a Senate term, you'd need people underneath those six to be able to step up and and fill um, any vacancies sort as they arise. Up, really. Yeah. So so what we people should see is a very long ballot paper. So you've got, you know, your your Labour Party with your eight names um, and your Conservatives with your eight names and your Plaid with your eight names, mm. Liberal Democrats, Greens and perhaps others as well. Doesn't sound good for independence, though. Independence in what way? Well, independent candidates. All right. It's, it sounds to me, I mean, I'm only an observer here and I have no view, of course, because <laughs> I'm not allowed to have one. But uh, it does seem like a bit of a carve up between the uh, the traditional parties that have all said, well, you can have so many of these, I'll have so many of these. But, you know, we, we've got independent councillors on, on RCT Council who, yeah. who are not, uh, you know, from a party. Yeah. And it would strike me that, that there isn't an opportunity for them under this new idea. I would disagree with that, actually. And I think if you look at where PR has been used in this way in other countries in Europe, it actually creates good opportunities for independence. And I think one of the keys to being a successful independent, I shouldn't shouldn't give this away because uh, <laughs> giving ideas to people who may be my opposition, but the, the key to being a successful independent politician is having built up your name and your reputation locally based mm. on a track record of good hard work and results. And if anybody was wanting to put themselves forward with that kind of reputation and that background, I actually think that the new electoral system would serve them really well. But they'd be able to get on the ballot paper? Absolutely, yeah. Right, yeah. OK. Well, yeah, that- it was just, wasn't just something that came to my mind when I was, was running through the way it worked, but absolutely they'd be able to. Excellent. Let's turn a little bit to you, because we haven't had a, a sort of chat before, a detailed chat before. I mean, where did you get this, you know, passion for, is it politics or is it local people service? Well, what is it that drives you? Oh, yeah, it's got to be a mixture of the two, really. Um, so so I grew up in, in Aberdeen and um, very much in a mining community when 
the mining industry was coming to its end you know one one of my first memories as a young child was my mother answering the door to other women in the community who were asking um, if we had any tins we could spare for the miners who were on strike um, I can remember being seven years old during the miners strike and discovering that the there was no Father Christmas. I hope you haven't got any young listeners <laughs> listening when I say this now. Um, because uh, I, I discovered that uh, there were so many children in my class who wouldn't be getting Christmas presents that year mm. because their fathers were striking minors. Uh, and I remember hearing grown-ups talking about this and being on the news. Um, and so from a very young age, although my parents weren't put particularly political I found that I was sort of absorbing all of this and it was colouring my view of the world Um, and as I got older I got more interested in local history and of course when you get into your your local history of the South Wales Valleys it's very much a history of a struggle between the workers and employers who had exploited them you know when the coal industry was not nationalized and and looking at the wage struggles the safety struggles all of that and that's what really shaped me and uh, when I was 17 my mother said to me what would you like for Christmas this year and I said um I'd look like membership of the Labour Party. <laughs> and my mother and father looked at each other <laughs> as if I'd absolutely lost my mind because this had come out of nowhere. Um, but I joined the Labour Party and I started going to meetings and very quickly felt as though I'd gained a family, which is still how I, I feel to this day. But it's interesting because as a young person joining a party like that, you you get quizzed by all the, the people who've been in the party for a long time will say, you know, why have you joined the party? You know, is it is it your your mother, your father, your auntie, your uncle? Who who's who's an existing member? There there always was this perception that as a young person coming into a party, it would be because of family links. And uh, yes, I used to get lots of quizzical looks when I explained that no, there was no tradition of politics in my family. This was just very much you know my decision and 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 my passion. And of course, the, the history of mining, particularly in, in you know your constituency and, and indeed all of our constituencies here in the GTFM area. I mean, it didn't get any better, did it? When it was nationalised, you know, mm-hmm. Aberfan happened. I mean, it was nationalised, but it didn't help. You know, you know, and then they closed down Tower, and yeah. boys said, "Look, there's tons of good coal down there." Yes. And eventually, they bought it. Yes. I mean, Tyrone has passed recently. Yes. I saw him speak uh, down in Swansea. I was down in Swansea running a radio station there, and he came to speak, and he was absolutely inspirational. Mm. It's the only time I've met him, but my goodness, there was so much power Mm. coming out of this guy who actually passionately believed, and they just bought the mine, and the boys were back in the mine. Yeah. And was it £11 million profit they made in the first three years? When they yes, it was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, so I've known I've known Tyrone and, and the family for, for many years and a really, really sad loss uh, that he passed away recently. But um, that, was, that was part of my journey to join in the Labour Party as well. I joined the Labour Party uh, just a couple of months after the Tower buyout and following that story of how a group of miners could pool their redundancy and challenge the Tory government who were 
closing the mining industry down they knew that mine was profitable and they knew that they could continue to have good high quality jobs and you know i still think it's one of the proudest stories that we can have from this area well i mean i nearly fell off my chair when john redwood who's a pretty right-wing tory Mm -hmm. came on newsnight and paid tribute to tyrone o'sullivan because he said they were right we were wrong yes and they said they put their money where their mouth was and it took a huge risk we thought they were taking a huge risk they didn't Mm. and you know qed it worked but but uh, the amount of respect coming from if you like the the people who were closing the mines down i mean you know put no finer point on it the, Mm -hmm. the thatcher government at the time to have that degree of respect from that side i think was was actually quite endearing Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'll always remember about Tyrone is that he thinked big, he dreamed big and he achieved big. Um, And I'd I'd known him many years before I was elected. But when I was elected, one of the first um, meetings in my diary was to meet Tyrone up at Tower Colliery, where he talked me through his ambitions for the site. And he said, see that mountain there, Vicky? Yes. I want a zip line coming off there. And he talked me through these plans and I remember thinking, this is one of the craziest ideas I'd ever heard. And to be honest with you, a lot of people thought that at the time, you know, people took some persuading, but that was Tyrone's dream. And my goodness, he achieved it with Zip World Tower. And now, I mean, the change that that's making to the local area, to its reputation, to its economy, um, the potential that it has t- as as a kickstarter for tourism in the area. You know, fantastic. We've got so much to thank Tyrone O'Sullivan for. And the community benefits as well are something that's, that's not to be underestimated um, in the area surrounding Tower. Um, hundreds of thousands of pounds has been given back to the community for good causes and community projects and you know again that's a that's a really good legacy to have and i think another thing that people don't realize is that currently only around about 10 to 15 percent of the land up there has been utilized and there are very big plans for the rest of it uh once all the remediation works are completed there's there's a huge huge plateau of land there that can be used for all sorts of different purposes Mm. and it'll have a rail connection the way the way things are looking yes hopefully sooner (laughs) rather than later (laughs) excellent this week in the Senate, uh, the First Minister has outlined the legislative um, plans mm. for the next year. And there's some interesting things in there. I mean, Senate reform is one of them, which we've discussed. Another one was the bus bill. Yes, very important <laughs> and long, long awaited because this was going to be something that should have gone through um, before COVID, but has been put on the back burner with the pandemic. And, you know, the best industry in Wales is really on its knees at the moment, I would say, due to, to the, the model we have for running that, uh, the deregulated uh, model that we inherited from the, the Tory UK government in the 1980s. So it's, it's absolutely crucial that we get this through and we get this right yes because the, the idea is to move back to a kind of you know centralized organized thing where it's all brought together i mean presumably these bus companies will continue to exist but as, as in some kind of pattern of 
overall control from Transport for Wales? Is that the idea? Well, sort of. So there's going to be, ultimately, the powers are going to pass to local authorities. Um, and I think this is this is a power that many people think local authorities already have, but they don't. So the bus bill will give local authorities the power to fully commission services in their area, to, to get them to join up with each other. Um, and it will eliminate the potential for uh, private bus companies to try and overrule decisions that have been made um currently you know we've just got a mishmash of private companies running services throughout our city and across wales and they don't join up with each other so if you wanted to catch a bus from Aberdeer to swansea for example you would have to change at Glyneath. And because you're dealing with two different bus companies there, they've got absolutely no vested interest in making sure that their services connect properly. So it should iron out all of those sorts of of issues. And with local authorities running the tenders, um, that should eliminate a lot of the commercial decisions that these bus companies take you know where I've lost count of the amount of times that I've written to bus companies expressing concern on behalf of constituents that services that are being cut and you know you can write the response before it even comes back and 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 sits in your email inbox it's always a case of if they don't think a service is commercially viable they won't run it so we need different model that looks at the worth of bus services above and beyond profit because unless we do that we're going to see the death of the bus industry in Wales. Yes and I mean and they do receive a lot of subsidy I mean that's been rumbling on since Covid Mm. of course and the number of bus users hasn't returned to pre-Covid levels I mean obviously there's a hope that it will but people are still quite reticent about going out into public transport aren't they? Yeah that's right but you know this is something that's often said that the number of bus users has has fallen which is completely correct but one statistic that doesn't get bandied around and really should is that 75% of public transport users travel by bus rather than rail. So yes, the number of bus users might be falling, but bus services are still an absolute lifeline for our communities. And I think particularly in the valleys, because the train service obviously only caters for those communities on the valley floor. And the communities that are furthest away from those rail services are usually the ones uh, that are least economically advantaged. So you need those bus services to connect those um, more remote areas, uh, those higher up areas in the valleys, um, down to the the trains um, and to connect areas within the valleys themselves also. Yes, and I gather there's an idea of buying, um, you know, combined journey tickets as well so wherever you wherever you're going or whether you're going to change from a bus onto a train and back onto a bus you can just buy one ticket yes Yes. Which should be amazing, won't it? Yeah, it will. It, it will make things a lot, a lot simpler. But you've got to, as well as being able to have one ticket, you've got to have the train that meets the bus, the bus that meets the train, and so on for it to really work. So, so you know, it's, it, there's a lot of work to do, and there's a lot of hope and expectation riding on this. And on that optimistic note, we'll, we'll draw a line under it for this month. It's been great meeting you, Vicky, and I look forward to meeting you now on a, a monthly basis. Oh, thank you, Terry. I've really enjoyed it and wish good evening to all of your listeners.